Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. Welcome to another edition of Medically Speaking. I know this is kind of an off night for us, but there is a big program next um, week, next Wednesday, when I would do my normal show that all my breast surgeons are involved in. It's a multidisciplinary uh, conference at the Lever Center, and all three of my breast surgeons are going to be involved in that. So we moved up our show because it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and we wanted to make sure that we could just give as much information as we possibly could on breast cancer and breast health. So I have with me tonight Dr. Nicole Sukan, who is our breast surgeon for St. Mary's Hospital in the Franklin Medical Group. Hi, Doc. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. You've been re- incredibly busy this month. It is. It's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, the month of October. And it was, you know, nice to promote breast cancer awareness. And you've been out there working morning, noon, and night, as I like to put it. You're out there at nighttime at events. This is the second time I've had you out at night. You were out in Woolkit a few weeks ago doing the kickoff for breast cancer awareness for them. I was. It was um, in front of the town hall. And they have a beautiful Christmas tree and they have pink ribbons. Oh, it's beautiful. And, and it was a wonderful night. It is a beautiful night. It, it, you know, it's then they have an incredible young woman who is a very young breast cancer survivor and she tells her story every year and every year they invite her back and it's just incredible to watch her journey every year and speak and she's how old is she I would say she's in her 40s. Yeah, she's very young, but she was diagnosed, I think, maybe late 30s, right? right. Yes, and she's such an inspirational speaker. She's an incredible inspirational speaker, and, and you know, you go to the event, and last year it rained, but this year was a beautiful night, and the, the tree was lit pink, and I think the, the center of town where they have the gazebo, they keep that tree lit pink for the entire month, right? That is correct. And we at St. Mary's Hospital have pink lights. It's beautiful. You could actually see it from the highway. You can see it from the highway, yeah. so the front of our hospital is all pink, so definitely sell Celebrating Breast Cancer Awareness Month and celebrating our patients and our physicians. And, you know, that brings me to a a beginning point, I think, with you. I want to talk about your journey as a breast surgeon and, you know, how you came to us and why you chose breast surgery. Right. So what's interesting is I was born in the Caribbean, in Trinidad and Tobago. And while growing up, I saw many women with advanced breast cancers. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, when I grow up, that's what I want to be. I want to be a breast cancer surgeon. And my parents thought I was crazy. (laughs) Um, So my journey started in Trinidad. I went to the University of the West Indies. Wow. And I actually went to England to do my um, further training. Wow. Um, I became a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons in Glasgow, Scotland. Mm-hmm. And then I got married, and my husband, who is an American, decided to move. To come bring his bride back here. Correct. Um, and so I actually um, did my residency in New York, wow. in the Bronx. Uh-huh. And I was fortunate enough to do a fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Incredible. So your background spans uh, continents, first of all. Do you see a difference in the um, in, in the culture of how we treat breast cancer amongst the different uh, cult- con- continents? Right. Well, you know, there's a different type of medicine practice in England. It's more socialized medicine. But I want to say in the U.S. we have we're so lucky because we have all these advances, mm. um, and I think the technology is much better in wow. the USA than the United Kingdom. That's it's incredible. You know, I didn't realize that. I think we've talked about it before, but I've forgotten what your journey was. And you know, just seeing that as a young girl and having that impact on you that right. you wanted to help women. And I'm sure in Trinidad at the time too, you didn't have the resources to take care of women like we have here. Absolutely. And you know, my mission, you know when I retire, is to get back down to the Caribbean and help women. Oh, that's incredible. I wish that you could 
see this incredible physician that's sitting next to me. She's amazing. She has the face of an angel and the heart of an angel. And just working with you has been an incredible privilege. I I recommend you all go to our website just to see her picture. It's stmh.org, and you can click on the Franklin Medical Group. Dr. Nicole Sukan, please go on there and learn more about her. And tonight, and I want to put this out to everyone, if you want to call in, please feel free, 203-757-1320. We're also going to end tonight about... Uh, 645. We're ending just a little bit early. I have another training to do tonight, so it's cutting into our time a little bit, but we're going to give you definitely a full 40 minutes of this incredible physician and our topic. When Dr. Sukin and I were talking about what we wanted to present tonight, um, last week we had on Dr. Um, your partner, Dr. Beth Sealing, and she talked about the hidden scar surgery, which you are becoming certified in also, which is incredible. Um, But we talked about diagnostics and maybe talking about screening of women, because screening's the biggest thing. Correct. You know, finding a breast cancer early is the most important piece. And so what is the criteria and what does a woman do? So it's all about early detection, because if we're able to detect cancer, at a very early stage, we have a better chance of treatment and improved survival. And there's been a lot of controversy in the literature um, in terms of when do we start screening. So recently, the American Cancer Society came out with some guidelines, and they now recommend that a woman with the average risk of getting breast cancer should actually start a screening mammogram at the age of 45 and continue every year until the age of 54. But with that in mind, they also recommended that women age 40 to 44 should be offered the option of having an annual mammogram. They also recommended women over the age of 55 should be offered the option of having mammograms every other year. Um, In my practice, what I do is most of my patients actually opt to have the mammogram at age 40, and then they continue on as long as they're healthy and physically fit. I think it's so important. I think two things that come to mind. Number one, women have a variety of different types of breast tissue, Correct. which we're going to get, we're going to talk more about, which would lead us in a lot of different directions. But, you know, working in this field with breast imaging for as many years as I have, I've seen so many women from year to the year, there's something that pops up. And why not catch it Correct. early? Correct. You know, and the cost of a mammogram is not that expensive. It's covered under screenings, you know, under your well visit from all of our insurances. But if you had to pay for a mammogram, there's so many programs out there that would help you pay for it. So why not get it? I agree. And the early detection program at St. Mary's offers screening mammograms for people who are, you know, uninsured. Right. I think it's a wonderful program. And we have two programs. So we have the one for the early detection program, and then we have the Woman for Woman grant right. that we do the golf tournament for every year where we've been able to raise money for women that either don't have insurance or really have those high deductibles, and they just can't fit the screening or the additional imaging tests in to their budget. Absolutely. And that's what you know St. Mary's is all about, trying to help the community. Right. And that's why, you know, I love working there. Oh, thanks, Doc. The other thing is is, you know, when we look at the rate of the doses of radiation, it's minimal for it's, a mammography, right? It's minimal. And what we fail to realize is when we actually take a flight from you know, Hartford to Florida, 
we actually are exposed to ionizing radiation in the atmosphere. Much more than on a mammogram. Correct. Right. That's, that is so true. You know, I, I've used that analogy with patients before because they're like, well, you know, I don't want to have all this radiation. This radiation is scary to me. But why do you think the guidelines changed? Because originally the guidelines were 40, you know, after the age of 40, get a mammogram every year. Right. And I think the reason being is that they did a lot of studies. And um, what they were finding in patients age 40 to 44, there was increase in biopsy rate mm. of things that were benign. So it's sort of like um, looking at the pros and cons of having a study. And, um, you know, after, you know, multiple reviews, they thought, you know, it was beneficial to present to the public evidence-based medicine. Well, and, you know, too, I mean, what I say is, yeah, there's an increased rate of biopsy, but is that because more women are taking advantage of mammography? So we're seeing, plus the imaging is better. The quality of the imaging is better, right? Absolutely, because if we look into the history of mammograms, we started off with the analog mammogram, and now we went on to the digital mammogram, right? and now we have the 3D or breast So we went from actually, to put it in layman's terms, we went from something that looked like a Polaroid shot to something now that looks like your your, uh, TV screen at home, what they call HD, right? Correct. So we have something that looks totally different now, So even in the comparison. So let's talk about the process, maybe, of what we do when we want to get a woman's screen. You said someone of average risk. What does that mean? So when we look at the risk factors of breast cancer, we look at things like age, family history of breast cancer. Um, Did the patient have sort of um, any prior biopsy? you know, were they exposed to any extra estrogen use? Mm -hmm. So those are all risk factors. So an average risk woman would be a woman who had no prior biopsies or probably had or has no family history of breast Mm -hmm. cancer. And we used to use, I remember when I used to work with the patients, we used to use if you, how many children you had, have you not had any children? And what, why would we ask them that? Um, Because women who are nulliparous, meaning women who have no children, actually have a slightly higher risk of getting breast cancer. And why is that? Um, Well, we think it's because when you're during pregnancy, your body's at least exposed to progesterone. And when you have unopposed estrogen in a woman who's not pregnant, right. there's a higher risk of more estrogen in your body, so a higher risk of So a higher risk, a risk of, of, breast of developing breast cancer at some point in your life. Correct. But that's, that's not seen as a first level of risk, right? That's Correct. more secondary. It is. And, you know, the ones, the factors that are more prominent is family history of breast cancer. That's, that's huge. But actually, when we look at it, too, I always say to women, don't use that as your scapegoat, right? Correct. You're right, because 75% of patients who actually get breast cancer have no family history. Mm-hmm. It's what we call sporadic cancer. So we don't know what caused their cancer. 15% would have a family member with breast cancer, but 10% actually have a genetic mutation that caused the breast cancer. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, too, because that's something we definitely look at and screen for. But so now we're on the topic of mammography. So that is the gold standard still, right? Um, the reason why it's the gold standard is because you can see calcifications on a mammogram, which you would not see on an ultrasound or another diagnostic study. Um, it's also the cheapest study. And um, nowadays, the majority of patients 
in water, but we, we now have the 3D imaging available. Right. So let's talk about 3D breast imaging. What's the difference between the mammogram I may have had a couple of years ago and now the mammogram that we're calling 3D, 3D breast and Im- imaging? Oh, my gosh, I'm tongue-tied tonight. <laughs> 3D breast imaging or tomosynthesis, right? Right. So the typical 2D films um, takes about four pictures of the breast. The 3D imaging, what it takes is multiple pictures of the breast at different angles, and then it sort of creates a three-dimensional view of the breast. Mm. So in other words, you can see within the breast, it's a much clearer picture. Right. And things that may have been sort of sort of crushed or superimposed tissue now becomes, you know, clearer because you could separate the tissues and see exactly what's going on in the breast. I was actually with a radiologist who was going through, and they call it slicing, right? Correct. Very much like a CAT scan, right? They call it different slices. Right. I, the very first time I saw actual imaging with the 3D, and he showed me right. how we can make something in the breast that may be a mass actually slice through the different pictures and until there was no more mass. Absolutely. That's really neat. And why does that, on a mammogram, why does it appear to be something, but it's really not? Um, Because what happens is when you go for your mammograms and they compress the breast, Mm. it's sort of compressing your breast like a pancake. (laughs) We all know that. (laughs) So the tissue sort of like... You're lucky, Johnny. You're lucky, Johnny. Yeah, the the tissue superimposes on itself. Mm -hmm. But when we do the 3D images and we do slicing, we can actually sort of separate those tissues out. That is, it's so interesting to see. And when you do the breast conference next week right. um, at the Lever Center, you actually present cases. We call it your mock breast camp conference, right? That is correct. And you present cases and you're able to see those types of images. I encourage the public, if you want to go actually see imaging and see cases that are discussed at the Lever Center right. and be a, an audience participant, it's really neat. And you get to see the differences between the types of imaging and what docs are looking at and why they're looking at them. Correct. Because I think it's scary. You know, a lot of times you're in the room now and the images come right up on the screen. And unfortunately, being a nurse and being a nurse that's done breast imaging for many years and been involved in looking at these films. I know what I'm looking at. So I'm like, wait, what's that? Let's position me differently. (laughs) But, you know, I think that's scary for patients in the room because they're saying, what's that? What's that? But you're not afraid of everything you're looking at. Right. And even nowadays, in the old days, we'd hang up films. Now we look on a computer screen. Yeah, it's really neat. Yes. And you guys have new monitors now. Right. Yeah, that's really good. It was an investment, you know, several thousand dollars. But, you know, we have the latest equipment. We have the latest equipment in each of the breast surgeon's offices, so you can actually look at these images the way the radiologist is looking at them. Because to put these on a CD and put them up on a little laptop computer is not the same. So for you to see the same image is so important. It is. And it's nice to have that second look. You know, the radiologist has a look, you know, at your images. But it's always nice to have a second look in case if something gets missed. Definitely. You know, we are all a team. Right. You know, and the team working together to do the best thing by that patient. And I think that is so important to make sure that if you your doctor sees something or you're not sure, if you have questions, discuss it with your with a breast surgeon. Absolutely. Especially if you have a strong family history. It doesn't mean that even if your mammogram is normal, if you have a strong family history, it doesn't hurt to make an appointment right. with a breast surgeon to look at your images. Right. With you. And, you know, in my office, we have what we call a high-risk program. Mm-hmm. So a person who has a strong family history, um, you know, we sort of go through with them, you know, things to look for. We follow them clinically. We do breast examinations. We follow up mm-hmm. their mammograms. We even talk to them about, you know, changing their nutrition, you know, exercise. You know, we to reduce the risk of breast cancer. Right, because there are 
some direct links between increase in fat and increase in estrogen production, which could link to an increase in breast cancer. Correct. Right? Um, they actually did a study where they found that if women lost 10% of their body fat, mm. they actually decreased their risk of breast cancer by as much as 50%. Could you imagine yeah. that? Could yeah. you imagine that? And that's just dietary changes it is. and a little bit of exercise. And we don't mean strenuous exercise. Right. Just taking really good brisk walks every day. Right. You know? They recommend 30 minutes a day. And you can do that. You know, even in the wintertime, you can do that. You can do that Christmas shopping at the mall. You can do 30-minute brisk wash. You just can't stop to look at the items. But you can do them all for 30 minutes. Then you can shop, Johnny. But you can't stop and have lunch and a drink after. (laughs) Too early, Johnny. I wanted to talk a little bit. You know, we're staying on that topic of imaging and our 3D mammography. But there was another tool that's recently been well, in the last 10 years, I'm going to say, brought to the forefront on women for women with what we call dense breast tissue, and that's ultrasound. Can we talk about what it means to have dense breast tissue? Sure. So the, de- the breast is made up of fat, and it's made up of what we call glandular tissue. And glandular tissue is really our ducts and our lobules. And so in a woman who has dense breasts, there's less fat and there's more glandular tissue. Mm. So when you look at the mammogram of a woman with dense breasts, it looks like a snowstorm. (laughs) And a cancer appears white on a mammogram. Mm. So it's sort of looking for a polar bear in a snowstorm. Wow. That's what dense breasts looks like. And does it, is it, is it women that are younger that have dense breasts or sometimes it doesn't matter? Right. It doesn't matter. Um, You know, it maybe due to genetics, but I've had a lot of 80-year-olds who have dense breasts as Imagine well. Imagine that. God bless them. <laughs> because dense breast tissue is more firm, right? It, it is. It is. Um, Johnny. <laughs> and, um, and that's why the ultrasound helps us because the ultrasound uses sound waves, whereas the mammogram uses x-rays. Mm. So the ultrasound is really good for detecting things that are solid or cystic. So in a woman who has dense breasts, on their mammogram report, you would see at the bottom, suggest another tool such as a screening breast ultrasound. So Dr. Nancy Capello from Are You Dense? She has been an advocate for um, getting screening breast ultrasounds in women that have over a density in their breast of what we categorize as a th- over a three, correct? Correct. Because we categorize density one, two, which is somewhat less dense. Correct. And then three and fours, we're looking to get um, an ultrasound in addition to the screening mammogram. That is correct. And that's so to improve our detection rate. You know, in women who have heterogeneously dense breasts or extremely dense breasts, um, those are women we target with a screening breast ultrasound. Now, all right, so I'm going to go down the road of two things here. So the first thing I want to talk about is... Can you replace the mammogram with just an ultrasound? Right, you can't. So the problem is that the mammogram, as I said, knew before, shows up calcifications very well. And a lot of women come to my office and go, hey, doc, I don't want to be squished. Can I just not have the mammogram? Um, right, saying since I'm dense anyway, can I just have a ma- the ultrasound? Right, mm-hmm. correct. Um, and it's just because that mammogram could pick up densities and calcifications that an ultrasound may not pick up. Right. So unfortunately, we still have to do the mammogram. Um, but of course, the ultrasound is much 
more beneficial in you know cystic or solid lesions so that you're able to see but you don't see the microcalcifications on an ultrasound right? on an ultrasound but unfortunately if you're dense it's harder to see them too correct so how on the second note that i have how has 3d breast imaging helped us with those dense breasts and does it eliminate now the ultrasound well um I must say with the 3D breast imaging, you know, the, the images are so much clearer that in some cases you may not need the ultrasound, but you have to think about, you know, um, you may miss things with your 3D because as I said before, you know, you're using x-rays when you do 3D mammograms and the ultrasound uses sound waves. So I think there's still a lot of benefit for the ultrasounds. Mm-hmm. And I recommended my woman with dense breasts to have both. To have both. Because... In women who have dense breasts, imaging may fail to pick up their cancers in up to 50% of the times. So in dense breast women, we still recommend both technologies. Where I can see the 3D breast imaging too helping is in those women that are on that borderline of a category two breast density okay. to a category three because hopefully it's able to slice through that thick tissue Correct. to give us a better picture. Um, there are definitely fewer callbacks. Mm. Well, that's yeah. huge because that's scary. Oh, my goodness. You get that call from your physician. Right. Or when you go for your mammogram and they say, hey, you can't leave the department because the radiologist saw something. So we need to mm-hmm. s- stick you in that machine again and squish on your breast even more. Yeah, but the 3D breast imaging helps without those additional pictures. Correct. That's great. How about for the microcalcifications? Um, how does it, can it see the microcalcifications better in 3D breast imaging? Actually, surprisingly, um, you see it better in 2D. Imagine that. Yeah, it's it's sort of you know. So that's why when they do the 3D imaging, they also do a 2D mammogram as well. So they, uh, oh, so they, how's the radiation for that? Um, so in terms of the amount of radiation that a 3D has, it's slightly more than a 2D, but not much more. But insignificant to even measure. Correct. That's great. That that's good news because I think that's scary. It you is. say I'm having all these pictures. How many pictures are they going to take? Right. So there's another tool that we have in um, our detection, and that's MRI. I know you like breast MRI. Right. So how does that help you? Right. So um, in patients who are what we call high risk, meaning that their lifetime risk for breast cancer is over twenty percent, or if they have a genetic mutation, um, the MRI helps us because it would the MRI does a thousand pictures of each breast. A mammogram does about four images. The 3D does about, you know, about 20 to 26. But an MRI does a thousand images. Wow. And in addition... There's no radiation. Correct. Um, You know, they use magnetic resonance imaging. And in addition, the MRI, when you go for your MRI, they give you a dye called gadolinium. And the dye gets injected. And areas in the breast that are suspicious, the dye gets taken up and excreted in a certain pattern. Hmm. And when you have your mammogram... Or your ultrasound, you don't have that dye injection. So that's why it's extremely sensitive. In fact, it's about 98% sensitive. And if you see something on the MRI, it may not be something you can even actually feel, right? Correct. So when you do, when you have to go ahead and actually biopsy an area that's suspicious, you have to use the MRI to help you, right? Um, you can, or sometimes if the MRI is able to tell you which quadrant of the breast is involved, you may actually be able to do an ultrasound and sort of zone into that area. Wow. And it's called a second look ultrasound. Oh, that's interesting. Yep. So So it rescans the area that maybe you missed. Correct. With the ultrasound. Yep. You know, you could sort of zone in, spend a little bit more time. Mm. Um, 
you know, probably in 20% of the times you may be unable to see it on ultrasound and then you have to get an MRI guided biopsy. So we use it in women of high risks, which means strong, strong family history. Correct. Women genetically. Correct. That are linked. And women with extremely dense breasts or maybe breast cancer that they've had before. Right. So um, unfortunately, the insurance companies will not pay for the MRI if you just say your patient has dense breasts. Mm. You have to show that they have such a high family history that their risk of breast cancer is more than 20%. Wow. And what does that usually entail? How many people in the family bring you to that level? Right. So what we actually do is we have what we call a risk assessment model. And there are different models out there. And what we do, we plug in the patient's information, like Mm -hmm. the age they had their first period, the age of their first pregnancy, did they have prior biopsies, um, how how many first-degree relatives, um, you know, had breast cancer. And we sort of add a premenopausal or postmenopausal. And once we plug in these values, we can sort of have a rough probability of what their risk of having breast cancer is. And using these risk assessment tools, we're able to generate a number. And if we're able to show the insurance company, hey, that person's risk is more than 20%, then the insurance company would pay for it. Which is so important because the MRI is the most expensive tool that we have. Unfortunately, but it is. It's the most expensive tool. So if the insurance company does not give their blessing on it, we have been able to utilize the grants, though, that we have at St. Mary's, especially the Woman for Woman grant, which is huge to help our breast surgeons. Yeah, I think that that's so important. I mean, if because it just depends on the plan. And and the other piece of that is even if the insurance company covers it, if the patient hasn't met their deductible, right, it may not be something they can do. Absolutely, and that's so scary with these high deductible plans. It is, and you know it's, it's such a, a shame that you know we have to so much of our medicine we sort of have to get preauthorization from an insurance company, right? And when you do genetic testing on some of these patients and you identify them as a high-risk patient, some peop- some of these patients choose to have surgery to remove that risk. Correct. Um, so when we identify a high-risk woman, you know, we can offer them a couple of options. The first option is surveillance, which means we see them every six months, we examine their breasts, they get a mammogram, ultrasound, MRI. We could offer them you know, with drugs such as a drug called tamoxifen, mm. which reduces your risk of breast cancer by 50%. Mm. Some women opt for double mastectomies, and I call it the Angelina Jolie special. <laughs> we're, we're able to remove both breasts through what we call, you know, hidden scar surgery, as my colleague spoke about last week. Um, and, you know, we were able to core the, the breast tissue and put in implants. Mm. So when a patient wakes up from surgery, you can't even tell they had surgery. You know, it's incredible the advances that we've made. But women that choose to do the high surveillance, those would be the women that have to get the MRI. Those are the women that you have to identify as 20% or more in order for their insurance to get it. Now, would you do mammography, breast ultrasound, MRI every six months, or do you rotate them? Well, what I do is I do the mammogram ultrasound, and then six months later I do the MRI. Oh, okay. So 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 every six months they're getting something. Correct. Hmm. Um, because these high-risk women, if they have, say, for example, BRCA1 mutation, right. um, their risk of breast cancer is as high as 85% over wow. their lifetime. One of the other tools that you use for diagnosis once you find a mass is something called stereotactic breast biopsy. Mm-hmm. And 
And I haven't talked about that on the show for a while, and I did, haven't talked about it with Dr. Sealing, and I know that yeah. both you and her performed them at St. Mary's. Can we talk a little bit about, sure. about stereotactic and what that is? All right. So there might be some... Um abnormalities that would show up on your mammogram, stuff like a density or microclassifications. And these you probably would not see on an ultrasound and you would not be able to feel it. So the only way of biopsying it is to use the X-ray technique. So what we do is we have a table, which we call a stereotactic table, and we have the patient lie face down. And there's actually a hole in the table and they put the breast through the hole. Mm-hmm. And then we take the you know x-ray plates and we compress the breast and we repeat the mammogram kind of like a mammogram laying on your stomach it right is, it is <laughs> and once we find the area that's abnormal we numb up the breast and then we target that area and we insert a small what we call vacuum assisted biopsy device which is actually a liposuction device hmm. And we go in and we target the area. And through a small incision, it's usually less than a centimeter. Yeah, it's like the tip of my fingernail. It's really tiny. It's tiny. And we're able to suck out that abnormality and send for testing. And they basically go home with a Band-Aid and an ice pack, right? That's correct. And they can go about their normal activity in a day. Absolutely. You know, I, I used to assist one of the radiologists in those procedures. And patients did incredibly well. And what I love about that procedure is you're not put out. You know, very different from traditional biopsy where, you know, it's an open incision um, and we get our diagnosis. And then if we have to do a surgery after, then you do a surgery. But to put yourself through a surgery that you may not need, because most of these are benign, right, Doc? You find a lot of benign tissue. Up to 80% of the times when we biopsy calcifications, they're benign. But we don't like, you know, years ago when I first started in this industry, we used to take a sit, we used to sit back and wait on those. They used to sit back and they say, oh, do a six-month follow-up on those microcalcifications. If they haven't changed, we'll wait, we'll wait. But that's not rule of thumb anymore. No. People, once they know they have them, they want to know what they are. I think it's a patient's anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know, once you know something is abnormal, you know, you don't sleep at night. Yeah, it's true. We were t- You talked a little bit about risk factors, and you were talking a little bit about the premenopausal and postmenopausal women once a breast cancer is diagnosed. What's the difference when you find a woman that's premenopausal versus the woman that's postmenopausal. All right. So um, the, the biggest um, you know, problem we have in the premenopausal age group, you know, the young women, um, their cancers tend to be what we call more aggressive. And so those are the women, you know, we do genetic testing. You know, we want to make sure they don't have a genetic mutation that causes their cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, in postmenopausal women, you know, most of the cancers surprisingly tend to be estrogen positive. And those are the less aggressive cancers. Um, and so in terms of management also, the patients who are estrogen positive cancers, they usually get um, medications to you know, block those estrogen receptors. Like the tamoxifen. Like the tamoxifen. The tamoxifen we use in premenopausal women. In postmenopausal women, we use something called a Remedex. Mm-hmm. So it's just a different type of treatment medications we use. The medications that help to treat them. It's scary, I think, when, when you're premenopausal because you're young and you're like, I have so much life ahead of me. And how do you, how do you consult those women? Right. So we go through all their options, you know, once they get diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, you know, nowadays we're able to offer them breast conservation surgery, which is a lumpectomy followed by radiation. Um, if they have a genetic mutation, you know, we may be more aggressive and offer them a mastectomy or double mastectomies with reconstruction. Because they have a higher risk of it returning, Re- reoccurring. Correct. Um, 
you know, but we have to be mindful that um, there's a lot of studies out there that have been shown that breast conservation surgery is just as effective mm-hmm. as double mastectomies. Um, and we also have to educate our patients on the, the risks of, you know, additional surgeries. And you have to look at lifestyle too, right? Because it's a commitment either way. Correct. You know, especially with the radiation. I mean, that's how often does someone have to go for radiation if they choose that road? Right. So um, typically we do what we call a six-week course of radiation treatment, which is every single day, Monday to Friday, um, for six weeks. It's a lot. Um, nowadays we have what we call a partial breast radiation where we stick a balloon at the site of the tumor, and that radiation actually is much shorter. Really? And they can use it for, um, it's abbreviated to seven days. So we're doing that in Lever. Correct. That's incredible. I didn't know that we had that. Yeah. See, there's so many advances out there you don't you don't even realize. We are talking about um, genetics, and you're talking about identifying that woman of of high risk, and you're counseling them to to which direction to take. It's scary because we only know of certain genes right now. You get some back, some of these studies back that say undeterminate. Meaning they're not sure. What does that mean? Right. So um, when you actually have a genetic mutation, you could either be positive, negative. And then there's something called a variant of uncertain significance, which basically means we don't know based on the information we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've found is the majority of patients who get that variant of uncertain significance turn out to be reclassified to a negative, you know, for the down result. the line. Correct. They, and so what they do is they're looking across the country as to other ones that match that. Right. And if they get enough of those cases that, that is, match, then they call it negative. Correct. Mm-hmm. And it's just the more information we know, the more we can make a better decision. So in a woman that's undeterminate and you're not sure, how do you treat that woman? Well, we still treat them as a high risk because based on their family history. So right. we still offer them surveillance. Um, those women, we tend not to be drastic as to say, well, you know, you need to have, you know, bilateral prophylactic mastectomies. But, you know, we definitely we do, you know, increase surveillance or offer them drugs like tamoxifen to reduce their risk. To reduce the risk of breast cancer or at least, you know, stay on top of it. And then if it comes back that they were not, then you can change their course. Correct. Of, of how you treat them and how you manage them. So... Typically, what is the type of patient that comes into your office that you're seeing? I mean, I'm, I, I know that a lot of our, our primary care physicians and our OBGYNs, they're sure. sending you guys everything. Right. Because they're just like, send it to the breast surgeon, send it to the breast surgeon. It, right. it didn't used to be that way. Um, well, we're actually very happy to see them because, you know, our role is to pick things up earlier. Mm. And also, you know, if um, a patient's anxious to, to, you know, allay anxiety. So in my practice, not only do I see, um, you know, breast cancer, but I see a lot of benign conditions as well. So I see a lot of breast lumps, nipple discharge, breast pain, you know, skin rashes on the breast. Um, I would say about 70% of my practice is actually benign breast disease. And it's important because, you know, you're the expert in that. But that peace of mind, you can't you can't buy that. Right. It's so important. And, you know, and I see it every day in my office. You know, a patient comes in anxious with a mammogram. And by the time they leave, they're smiling and they're happy. Because, you, right, because they're, all they're looking at is a report. And that's right. all their doctor's looking at is a report. That's not, that's not their level. That's not their expertise. So sending it to you to have that level of reassurance and maybe repeat it in six months or, or even right. not at all is important for information for them to have it is and you know it's um you know 
as a woman, you know, I could understand because anytime I have an abnormal result, even myself, I think of the worst case scenario. We do, we do, and especially in medicine, we're the, we're our worst enemies. It is. So it's so important. So I know you have um, been in the prospect office now for the last several years, and you have a new um, physician assistant, Deanna Lacordo. I want to make sure we shout out to her. Yeah. Because she wasn't well today. Yeah. And she's a, such a sweetheart. She's such a great ad- addition. Um, you know, she does a lot of the genetic counseling. Mm. You know, she sees a lot of the post-op patients. And, you know, she's actually an individual who loves what she does. She does. And I think that's so much it's so beneficial because it takes a team it does it definitely takes a team especially because you are an incredibly busy woman yeah and you know i I think you know when i go to work i have fun Mm -hmm. which makes it so easy now you're going to be out there next week um doing this mock breast uh, cancer conference so i wanted to talk a little bit about that i did touch on it a little bit with dr sealing but i want to you know we have a few minutes left i want to talk a little bit about that conference and what are some of the benefits to you and your patients and what will people see next week when they come if they come right so um what we do every single patient who gets diagnosed with breast cancer gets presented in front of a team of doctors. And it's usually, you know, myself, three other breast surgeons, a radiation oncologist, a medical oncologist, the radiologist who read your films, the pathologist who read the pathology report. Mm. So in a conference, we're actually going to go through scenarios. So we'll be taking, you know, from the patient's presentation, their history. We'll be looking at the actual mammograms, the ultrasounds. The pathologist will show us the actual biopsy pictures, what they found. Mm. And then we'll spend some time going through their management. Did they have a mastectomy? Did they have a lumpectomy? And actually, the plastic surgeons are going to be there to show some interest in photos. And that's really impressive. You know, when you look at the pathology images of the biopsies that you took and how, what they're looking for, I, that always amazes me. I did horrendous in microbiology. So I right. find them to be the, their level of knowledge and looking at these cells and differentiating right. what's benign and what's malignant is incredible. And for patients to see that or participants right. in the audience, it's a great tool. Right. And, you know, it's, you know, it would be interesting for the patients to see that they actually get 20 opinions, right. not just one opinion, um, you know, and it's also good to see behind the scenes. Yeah, definitely. So that's at the Lever Cancer Center next week. I believe it starts at 530. There's a light dinner. Correct. If you go on levercancercenter.org or call the Lever Cancer Center at 203-575-5555, um, you can ask more about the program. I know I have to be a wealth of phone numbers. Um, and you can ask about the program. I encourage you to go because all three of our breast surgeons will be there. Dr. Ellen Polakoff, Dr. Beth Sealing, and Dr. Nicole Sukan will be there at the Lever Center. So we are going to wrap this up tonight. We're Again, ending a little bit early, but um, we wanted to make sure that we were able to get you in here before next week's program. Um, is there anything you'd like to end with tonight? Um, no, it's just, you know, to tell everyone, you know, just make sure Breast Cancer Awareness Month, you know, if you haven't gotten your mammogram, definitely think about that and, and get it done. Great. Thank you for joining us. And this is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Medically Speaking. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Nicole Sukan, please visit our website, stmh.org. You can click on the Franklin Medical Group at the top and also click on the Spirit of Women um, tag across the top of our um, page on stmh.org. And you can learn more about the Spirit of Women and our next program, which is going to be November 10th at the Naugatuck Valley Community College. And we will have Dr. Alex Alvarez. 
Alvarez, and we're going to be talking about Tame Type 2, which is controlling type 2 diabetes and see if you're at risk. So again, Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, and I will be back November 9th with Dr. John Testa and his crew. I won't tell you who that crew is until that night, but we will be talking about our urgent care and primary care center out in Cheshire. So Robin Sills, St. Mary's Hospital, exceptional care, every patient, every day. Have a great night.